John 14, 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Thank you. Good morning again. Uh, we're still glad you're with us. And welcome to Hiawatha. A little introduction to me and then a little kind of review and introduction of where we are in the Gospel of John and then we'll look at today's passage. My name is Jesse Splann. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha, which uh, probably means a little less than you think. But one of the things it means is from time to time I get the opportunity to preach. And this obviously is one of those times since I'm standing here. So I'm looking forward to it. This is a great passage, and I always enjoy preaching. So uh, that is me in a nutshell. And then where we are in John, so we're in the last third of the book of John, and Jesus now is in the last 12 hours of his life before he uh, goes to the cross and dies, and then a few days later rises from the dead. So right now, he is with his disciples in a room having what is commonly called the Last Supper, which was the last meal he ate before uh, he was captured and then put on trial and then killed. So he, they have finished eating the meal at this point. They're kind of sitting around digesting, and Jesus is talking to them, teaching them, them some things. They're asking him some questions, and that conversation is going to continue uh, through chapter 14 and 15 and uh, 16, I believe. And then after they're done, they're going to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where Jesus prays and then is arrested, and then the rest of the events of his death and resurrection and trial unfold. But that is where we're at and what is kind of happening right now in the book of John. So he's with his disciples. They've just finished eating a meal. They're doing some talking about different things. Jesus is about to teach them some things uh, and respond to some of their questions. So, John 14, 1 through 14, I am the way and the truth and the life is the title, a quote from Jesus in the passage. And as it was just read, I will not read it again, which is kind of nice sometimes. All right, 
We're going to start out with Jesus' first statement. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, have any of you ever been in a conversation where the other person's doing the talking and it starts out something like this? Now, don't get angry, but... Now, why do people say that? If I'm in a conversation and I'm talking to someone and I start it that way, I say that because I think whatever I'm going to say afterwards is something that's likely to make the person angry. So I'm trying to kind of head that off a little bit and uh, deflect some of the impact of that. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Because he knows that what he's about to say after this are things that are likely to trouble the people that are hearing it, his disciples. So he's saying this to kind of mitigate that a little bit. And that's important. This idea of let not your hearts be troubled is something we're going to kind of loop back to throughout this passage. Because Jesus says some things in this passage that are troubling. There's both things that are troubling in the immediate context for his disciples that are sitting there. Their idea of who Jesus was, was he was a king that was going to come, that was going to overthrow the Roman government and kick them out. And the Jews were going to get back all the land that God had promised Abraham so long ago. So they're thinking Jesus is this physical king that's going to come and conquer and rule. And Jesus now has just said, uh, actually, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to raise from the dead, and then this passage he says, and then I'm going to leave. And they're like, wait a minute, that doesn't compute. How can you be here ruling if you leave? How can you win as a king in this battle if you die? Like, I don't understand what you're saying. This doesn't make any sense. Something that would trouble their hearts. Now, for us, we're not in that immediate context. That particular thing is not troubling for us on the other side of the cross, on the other side of Jesus and resurrection. We have some understanding of those things that they didn't at that point. But there are still things in this passage that can be troubling for us. Um, So we're going to walk through the passage now and talk about it. And when we get to those things that can be troubling, we will talk about those. And how the things that can seem troubling, Jesus actually means for encouragement. So, All right. Starting with verse 2 here. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So a couple things to point out here. First, notice Jesus says the house has many rooms. What does he mean by that? There's enough space. Jesus is about to invite people in, invite them to be with him. He says, I'm going away so I can come back and bring you to be where I am, so that you can be with me where I am. And there is enough space there. No one will ever attempt to come to Christ and enter into that house of God and have Jesus say to them, ooh, sorry, we just ran out of room. Try again tomorrow. I just went a few weeks ago to visit my brother in Michigan and his family, and so we arranged it beforehand and, you know, figured out the dates and when I would fly in and fly out and all that, and uh, what time he would pick me up at the airport. So when he picked me up, I just assumed that we would drive to his house, that he wouldn't be like, okay, so you're here, I got you a hotel room, and you can stay there, and I'll see you tomorrow, we can hang out some. No, like I went to their house, I stayed with them, I was in their home, which is what I want, because then I get to see them more, I get to be around the family. It would be less enjoyable if I was not with them. So in the same way, 
Jesus here is not saying, yeah, I'm going to put you up in a hotel or I'm going to build you like a little guest house on my property or something like that. Jesus wants us to be where he is. And notice he invites us into his father's house. So it's not just a physical space. It's not just he's going to invite us in to have a place to be, but he's going to invite us to be part of the family of God. He's going to invite us in not just to a house, but a home to share that, to share that relationship, that love. Just like I got to do a few weekends ago with my brother for a few days. I was in his home sharing relationship with the family, sharing that love, uh, sharing meltdowns from young children, um, the good and the bad. But there is enough room. Anyone who wants to come, there is room for them to come. And Jesus wants to share the family of God with us. He wants us to be sons of God. He wants us to be his siblings. He doesn't just want to put us up to get us out of the elements. But that's not the only thing that's happening here. This imagery is also wedding imagery at this time. So if you were Jewish at this time, this imagery would resonate with various things related to wedding. So if I was a Jewish male at this time in the first century and I had a woman and I wanted to marry her and we had been, uh, they didn't do dating really, but the dating equivalent. And so I would propose to her and we would get engaged, uh, actually betrothed, which is technically different, but for the purpose of this, just think engagement, it's close enough. So we get engaged and then what would happen next? I would actually leave. So I've been around, I've gotten to know her and her family. Now I've proposed, she said yes, we've gotten engaged and now I'm going to leave for some indeterminate amount of time, a few months, up to a year, or a year and a half. And the reason I'm going to leave is I'm going to go to wherever we're going to be living and I'm going to prepare the place that we're going to live to be livable for us. So either I'm going to go and build a house if there isn't one yet, or if I have a house already, I'm going to go and prepare it to be lived in. And she doesn't know exactly how long that'll take. I'll give a rough estimate like, yeah, it'll probably be about six months or about a year or about a year and a half. But she doesn't know exactly. And I don't know exactly. So I'm going to go and she's going to wait. And eventually, I'm going to come back. The house is going to be ready. The place we're going to live is going to be ready. So I'm going to come back to get her. And when I come back, she and her friends and family and any friends and family that I might have in that area are all going to come together as a big wedding party and go back to this place. And that's where the wedding is going to take place there and then the reception would follow. And wedding receptions at that time, a lot of similarities to a re wedding reception you might attend now. The difference is it would have lasted a lot longer. If you were rich enough, it might have lasted two or three weeks. And you would just basically have this big party and you would provide food and drink and so people would just eat when they wanted to. They'd hang out with each other. They'd go and take naps and go sleep when they wanted to. I and my spouse, new spouse, we would be there. We would interact with people some. We'd spend some time by ourselves. We'd interact with people some. And that would just be what it was like for a few weeks. Basically just a big party with people that you loved and cared about. And how rich you were would determine how long you could afford to feed people, basically. So Jesus here is not just saying, I want you to be part of the family. Not just saying, I have a place prepared for you to spend eternity with me. He's saying, I want to marry you. So it's a double image. It's the image of adoption and becoming part of the family. It's also an image of marriage. Um, in a spiritual sense, not in a creepy sense. No one is going to physically marry Jesus. Um, so we've got those images. 
Notice also at the end what he says. He doesn't say, I will come and will take you to this really cool house where you can stay. He says, I will come and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It's more about the person than it is about the place. It's more about the fact that you're going to be with Jesus than where you're going to be. Have any of you ever been on a trip or a vacation with people that you love and you enjoy vacationing with and you got to this place and the place was a little bit disappointing for whatever reason? It was a little bit of a letdown, but the vacation or the trip was still a win because you were with people that you loved. And so even though the place you were was a letdown, the company you had made it still a good trip. Or if you ever had the reverse, where maybe you're traveling alone or you're traveling with people that you would really rather not have traveled with, and you go to a place that's just spectacular, it's amazing. But the trip is kind of a letdown because of the people that you're with. So when you're traveling, when you're on a trip, the place you go affects the trip, but the people affect it more. Now the difference is, when we're with Jesus in eternity, heaven is not going to be a letdown. We're not going to be disappointed with the place. Actually, eternity won't be spent in heaven. It will be spent on earth. Christ will be here on earth. So the place is not going to be the letdown, but the person that we're with will be even more of a win than the place. It's more about the person than it is about the place. Continuing on, Jesus continues speaking. You know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, one of his disciples, said to him, Lord, uh, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas is saying, Jesus, we have no idea where you're going. Like you said something about dying and we're not really paying attention. So we don't actually even know exactly what that means. You can't really mean dying because that doesn't make sense with what we think is going to happen. But we have no idea where you're going. How can we possibly know the way to get to where you're going? Notice what Jesus says here. He says, I am the way. The way is not a route. The way is a person. You don't have to know how you're getting there. You just have to know the person that's going to get you there. So Jesus can say you know the way, even though they don't know where they're going, because they know the one who's going to get them there. It's not a route, it's a person. Verse 6 is one of those verses, depending on uh, your history and exposure to Christianity and Jesus, may be very encouraging, may be very offensive, may be very confusing, may be something that causes your heart to be troubled. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And you might think, wow, that's super encouraging. And you might think, wow, that sounds really offensive. It sounds like Jesus is saying, he's the only right way and all other ways are wrong. It sounds like saying he, he's saying he's the only truth and all other searches for truth will ultimately be fruitless. He's saying no one comes to God except through him. Wow. Or you might just be confused. You might read it and be like, well, I don't know exactly what it means. I'm kind of confused. I don't know what's really going on here. So if I, Jesse, stood up here one Sunday and said, hey, I know the way to God, and there's only one way to God, and I'm going to tell you the way from God, not preaching from Scripture, just myself. And then I told you, and I said, okay, that's it. Follow that, and you'll get to God. Don't, and you never will. You might say, whoa, wait a minute. Like, 
where, what gives you the right to say that? You're just one guy. Like, you might be a smart guy, you might not, but there are other people out there smarter than you. What makes you think you're right and they're wrong? Or there are people who have a lot more experience in life than you do. Are you saying that your lack of experience trumps their experience? How can you possibly say that you know this one right way with all the other possible opinions and people in the world? How can you say that? If I say something like that, it's arrogance. And it may not be right. Now, if Jesus says something like that, that now brings us to the point where we have to confront a question that everyone has, is confronted with and has to answer in their life. Not just once, many times. The first time sometimes is the hardest. Sometimes you think the first time is the hardest until you get to like the thousandth time and then you realize the first time wasn't really that bad. But the question is, who is Jesus Christ? There are a lot of important questions people ask in life. And a lot of questions whose answers greatly shape and affect the course of your life. Questions like, will you marry me? And the answer to that question. That question will have a huge impact on everything that comes after it, the answer to that question. But the most important question anyone will ever ask and answer is the question, who is Jesus Christ? Because Jesus said certain things about who he was. And some of the things he says are easy to take in. Things like, love your neighbor. It's like, oh yeah, I like it when Jesus says that. That's nice. I like love. And then Jesus will say things like this, where he says, I am the only way to the Father. No one can come to the Father except through me. It's a little harder to take. But if Jesus actually is who he says he is, then this statement is true. If he's not who he said he was, then all of this is a waste of our time. We obviously believe here at Hiawatha that Jesus is God and is man, that he was who he said he was, that he did die for sin and raised from the dead. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be up here right now preaching. Literally anything else I could be doing would be a better use of my time than this, if this isn't true. Paul says that in the scripture. He says, if Christ didn't actually die and wasn't actually raised from the dead, then your faith and everything you do with it is a waste of your time. Who is Jesus? That is the question you have to ask. Because Jesus doesn't just make statements like, love your neighbor, or God loves you, or I'm here to die for you, to bring you to God. As we said before, to bring you into the family, to bring you into the marriage. He also says statements like, I'm here to do all that, and I'm the only way that can ever happen. Nothing else can accomplish that. But Jesus is saying this, and he means it as a means of encouragement. Now, we hear it sometimes as something that troubles our hearts or weighs heavily or we don't like, but he means this as encouragement. Let me explain what I mean by that. So, speaking, Jesus is the way. We hear that. Jesus is the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's like, oh, that's kind of mean. Like, there were all these options, and now Jesus just narrows it down. There's only one option, and he just eliminates all these others. That's our perspective usually when we hear it. But that's not a correct perspective. The correct perspective is actually there was no way to God. There were no options. And Jesus, where there was no path, made a path. Without Jesus, we had no way to reach God. We try and we fail because what God demands is perfection. That's his standard. And none of us are perfect. 
Spoiler alert, if you think you are, you aren't. So, None of us are perfect, but Jesus accomplished that perfection for us. And so now, he is the way. We no longer have to do things. We no longer have to accomplish certain tasks or check things off a list. We don't have to memorize so much of the Bible or attend church so many Sundays in a row. Now, spending time in the Word of God and memorizing that is a helpful thing. Being with the body of believers on a regular basis on Sunday is a helpful thing. But we are not saved because we do those things. Salvation, all it is, is believing what Jesus says here, that he is the way, that because of our sin, we were separated from God, and there was no way for us to fix that. And there still is no way for us and ourselves to fix that. But Jesus came and said, don't worry, I'll fix it for you. Like Peter was praying after the worship set, Jesus died in our place. He did the thing we couldn't accomplish. And all we have to do is believe that he is the way. We don't have to find the way ourselves. We don't have to try and make our way ourselves. Jesus is the way. We need Jesus' salvation to make a way to God. There is no other way. Without Jesus, it's not that there are many ways. There is no way to God. There is no hope. We're all lost without that. Jesus is the way to God. But Jesus is not just the way. He is also the truth. Continuing on in the passage, Jesus speaking still, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Philip is another of the disciples, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Have you ever thought, I wonder what God is like. I'd like to see God. I'd like to talk to God. I'd like to know God better. What is God like? What does Jesus say here? Philip says, Show us the Father. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you want to see God? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Open up the Bible or a Bible app on your phone and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see in those what does God value? How does God care for people? How does he interact with people? How does he deal with our sin and our shortcomings and our failings? Look at Jesus, and you'll see a picture of God's love. You'll see a picture of God's mercy. You'll see a picture of God's justice. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to see God? Look at Jesus. It's incredible what Jesus does here. Um, So God says about himself that he's unknowable. He says, yeah, you can know certain things about me, but I'm God. You can't know me. What I am is beyond your ability to know. And yet Jesus makes the unknowable known to us. God says in another part of Scripture, I live in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen me. No one can see me. And Jesus comes and he makes the unseeable seen. In the Old Testament, God would speak to people and people were terrified by it usually. They'd say, stop talking. We can't handle the sound of your voice. It's too intense, it's too powerful. Please stop talking to us. We can't hear you. Jesus comes and he makes the unhearable heard. Jesus makes the unknowable known. He makes the unseeable seen. He makes the unhearable heard. Jesus shows us God. Look at Jesus. 
to see God. Also, only Jesus can give us a true and full picture of God. Now, there are lots of things in life that can give us partial uh, pieces of a view, a picture of God. Scripture says nature gives us some pictures of who God is, pieces of that. It says interaction with other believers and other people gives us some pieces of a picture of who God is. So we can get little bits, little glimpses from a lot of different things in life. But all of those are incomplete. And apart from Jesus, all those will lead us to a picture of God that's incorrect. Only with Jesus do we get a full and complete picture of God, and only with Jesus can we get a true picture of who God is. A picture that takes all those other pieces and puts them into the correct focus. In Christ we see God, and only in Christ can we see God truly and fully. Jesus continues, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus here is both reinforcing what he just said. He says, uh, if you look at me, you've seen the Father. If you hear my words, those aren't words I spoke on my own authority. The Father gave me those words. Those words come from his authority, his truth. And Jesus says, believe based on those words. But if you don't, at least believe based on the works, on the miracles that he's done, that we've seen him do. And the great miracle that's coming, the miracle of his death and resurrection. Jesus' words are truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth. Jesus' words are truth. He speaks truly, but also his works are truth. The miracles he performs show us true things about God. The words that he speaks tell us true things about God. Jesus and just as Jesus says, I am the way, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus is also the truth. There is no other truth that can bring you to God. If you're searching for answers, if you're here and you're not a believer and you're thinking, like, what's the meaning of life? Is there ultimate knowledge? Is there ultimate truth? And you're searching for that. You can only find that ultimately in God. Jesus is the only truth that can bring you to God. The only truth that can reveal God truly. And don't miss the fact in this that truth exists. In today's world, that's even a question, right? Like, what is truth? Is there truth? Jesus comes and says, I am truth. Now, truth is not just a thing or an idea or a statement. It's embodied in a person. Jesus is truth. Not just Jesus knows truth or Jesus will tell you truth. Jesus is truth. In a world that isn't even sure if truth exists. Jesus is truth. His words are truth. Truth that we can cling to. Truth that we can rely on. Truth that's steadfast and unchangeable. When Jesus says in Scripture today, I love you, we know tomorrow he will still love us because that truth doesn't change. When God says in Scripture, Jesus' death and resurrection is all that's necessary for your salvation, believing that. We know that tomorrow God's not going to say, actually, Changed my mind. Sorry about that. He's spoken truly. The things he's said are true today. 
They were true yesterday and they'll be true tomorrow. We can know that truth. We can rely on that truth. We can cling to Christ in that truth. You may wonder, why in showing truth, why did God choose to show himself through a person, through Jesus? Why not just through his words, things that are written? Or through something visual like a picture or something like that? Why through a person? There's a cool quote I'm about to read that I actually don't have an attribution for because the source I got it from didn't actually say who quoted it. So I have no idea who said this. It isn't me. It's someone else. Uh, They know and God knows, but other than that, I have no idea. But this is a really great uh, statement on this idea of why God revealed himself through Christ, at least part of the reason. The quote is, No material image or likeness can adequately depict God. Only a person can give knowledge of him, since personality cannot be represented by an impersonal object. So the equivalent is, say someone has a picture of me and they show you that picture. You can know some things about me just by looking at the picture. But there are things you can't know about a person from a picture. There are things you can only know by interacting with them. Things of their personality, of who they are. It's the same with God. God could have given us something else, and we could have known some things about him. But we couldn't have known him as a being with personality. We can only know that through another being, through another person. An impersonal object could not have adequately communicated that to us. So Jesus communicates not just knowledge about God, not just like empirical truths about God. It communicates God's personality, his emotions, who he is, how he feels, how he acts, how he responds to things. Jesus is the truth. Finally, Jesus is the life. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So if you've been around Hiawatha at all, uh, when you read this verse, or even if you haven't, uh, you may read this verse and think, what? What did he just say? No, that can't be true. How is that possible? How can we do things greater than what Jesus did? He's about to die for the sins of the world and be resurrected from the grave. Like, we can't do that. I can't die for anyone's sins. I can't raise myself from the dead. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. It's like, okay, like I can see that part of it. Like we've seen that in scripture already. The apostles have gone out teaching in the same way that Jesus taught, healing and performing miracles. So yeah, we've seen that. But greater works? There is no greater work than what Jesus is about to do. How can this be? To answer that question, we have to correctly understand what Jesus is talking about here when he says work and what that work is and how we relate to that work that he's doing. So the question, ultimately, what is the work? What are the works that Jesus is doing? Why did he come? What was the work he came to earth to do? Ultimately, it was the work of salvation. That is the ultimate work that Jesus did. All the miracles he performed, all the teaching he did, are working towards that goal of that ultimate work of accomplishing salvation for us. That is what Jesus came to do, primarily. So the work that he is doing is salvation. And what is salvation but to bring us life, to bring us to life out of death? That's what salvation is. Jesus is taking dead things, people, 
and bringing them to life. That's the work that he's doing. That's the work of salvation. And now you say, well, Jesse, that just makes it more complicated. Like, we can't do that. We can't save other people. There's no way we can do that. And there is no greater work than that. Like, Jesus is saving people. There's nothing greater. There's nothing beyond that. Scripture makes it clear that, like, this is the greatest thing. Jesus' death and resurrection is the greatest miracle, the greatest work anyone will ever see or experience. So what does it mean? Let's look at Acts 1 and Acts 2, two verses from them, to see what Jesus is saying here to the disciples and to us indirectly as believers. So the first one from Acts 1, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120. So after Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, there were about 120 believers. And this was like Jesus' 12 disciples or apostles, other disciples, uh, a bunch of women that had also been with him. So this is different men and women, about 120 people. So Jesus, in three years of ministry, at the end of it all, when he leaves earth and ascends back into heaven, there's 120 people that believe. Not too bad. The next chapter, Acts chapter 2, this is... Uh, Peter and the other apostles are at the temple. There's a festival going on, so there's a ton of people there. And through a course of events, Peter stands up and preaches a sermon and preaches to them like who Christ is, what he's accomplished for salvation. And at the end of this sermon, the first Christian sermon that's preached, it says, the second verse here, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the number of believers goes in one day from about 120 to about 3,000. In one day, after Peter's sermon, more souls come in than Jesus ever got in his entire three years of ministry. Now this is not saying that Peter is superior to Jesus. Scripture is not saying that. He's not saying, well, Jesus like lacked something or forgot something, so he only got to 120, and then Peter like unlocked the secret and that's why he got 3,000 and then it kept going from there and kept multiplying. That's not what it's saying. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. Greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now this part's a little tricky because part of what Jesus is saying here actually comes in next week's passage. He's going to talk about how he's going and the Holy Spirit's going to come and be with people and then he's going to explain what that means, how the Spirit's going to help. But basically the Spirit's going to come and the Spirit's going to both empower the apostles and other people as they preach and do ministry and like empower that gospel message. And also the Spirit is going to come and soften hard hearts to receive that message and be changed and bring life out of death. So that's what Jesus means when he says, greater works than these will he do. Greater works than these will we do. It doesn't mean we're going to do things that are categorically superior to what Christ did. It means because he's with the Father and the Holy Spirit is here, empowering ministry, empowering preaching, empowering teaching, empowering the going forth of the gospel. And because the Holy Spirit is here softening hearts and transforming, the harvest and the fruitfulness is going to be greater than what Jesus had. Because Jesus is with the Father and has sent the Spirit to help. That's what it means. So it's not saying we're superior to Jesus or the things we do are superior. It's saying the harvest that's seen now in the church is a superior harvest in terms of numbers and people coming in to what Christ saw because Christ has been raised from the dead. 
gone into glory with the Father and sent the Holy Spirit. Very important to understand that. Also, this passage is not saying, this Acts 2 passage, that every time you share the gospel with people, 3,000 people are going to come to Christ. I've preached at Hiawatha a lot of times. I've never preached and had 3,000 people come to Jesus afterwards. As far as I'm aware, I've never had someone come to Christ immediately after my preaching directly as a result of it. If it has happened, I'm not aware of it. But I've never seen that happen. So in your life, as you interact with people, if you share the gospel with someone, whether in a formal setting, preaching and teaching, or a casual setting, over dinner with someone, playing a board game with someone, chatting with your neighbor across the fence, and they don't immediately come to Christ, don't think to yourself, oh, I failed. This wasn't like Peter. Something must be wrong. I must not have the Holy Spirit or this must not be working. No. That is not always how that works. Sometimes it does. Think about yourself. Think about when you became a believer. Did you hear the gospel message just one time and then instantly believe? Possibly that happens sometimes. It happened here in Acts. But probably most of you had to hear it multiple times over a period of time and had discussions and wrestled with different things. That's more often what we see. That's what happened with the apostles. That happens in other parts of the New Testament. So can this happen, that 3,000 come in one day still? Of course. Is that the normal thing we see in day-to-day life? Usually not. So don't be discouraged if every conversation, or most conversations, don't end in someone believing. That does not mean there's failure on your part necessarily. It means that the way God works and his timetable is not always the same as we want it. Finally, the last verse. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Sweet. I pray that we would have snow every day for the rest of the winter. In Jesus' name, amen. And right now, many of you are glad that prayer does not work the way I just prayed. When Jesus says do it in his name, that does not mean praying and then adding on the end, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's not bad to do that, to end your prayers that way. That's not bad. But this is not an incantation. This is not magic. That is not what this is. That's not what Jesus is saying, as evidenced by the fact that I just prayed, said in Jesus' name, amen, and it's not snowing outside. So So what does it mean then when Jesus says, if you do things in my name, or if you ask things in my name, he will do it. What does that mean to do it, in, to ask in his name? It means to be aligned with Jesus' character, his reputation, his goals, and his methods. It means to do it in Jesus' power and strength. So, if you ask for something, and it's aligned with God's goals and methods, it's aligned with what God wants and how he's working, then of course he's going to say yes. Because you're just asking for the thing he's already doing. It's like if you want your kid to eat more vegetables and one day they come to you and you're, they're like, Dad, can I please have some vegetables? And you say, yes, of course. And you give them to him and the kid's like, ha ha, I got them. They gave me what I wanted. It's like, no, like all you did was ask them for the thing they already wanted to give you. So of course they said yes. You didn't like trick them. You just were aligned with what they wanted. It's the same with God. When we pray things that are aligned with what God wants, then of course he's going to say yes, because it's what he's doing, it's what he wants. And what does God want ultimately? 
the salvation of those who are lost, those who are dead to come to life. So we can confidently pray those prayers knowing that that's what God wants. That doesn't mean those are the only prayers we should pray. It says in Scripture, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all types of requests. So yes, pray for other things. But understand that the thing you think is what God wants as you pray may not actually be what he wants in that situation. And this, now this statement and this idea with prayer, this could easily be two or three more sermons. There's a whole bunch of things that come up from that. It's like, well, wait a minute, like, what if I'm praying for someone to get well because they're sick and they don't? Are you saying God doesn't want them to get well? Like, what does that mean? There's all these things that come up from that. I would encourage you uh, either to go through Hiawatha's backlog of cattle or backlog of sermons. There are a couple sermons we've preached on prayer to go and listen to those. Those will be helpful. Or to come talk to me or another elder or a friend that you came with after the service. Um, and understand you will not get a complete answer to that in the five-minute conversation we'll be able to have, but you can get some help. But I'll just say right now, in the midst of questions like that, remember these two things, that the person that you care about in those situations and love and want a certain good outcome for, Jesus loves that person more than you ever will. And Jesus wants their good more than you ever will. So if you pray something and God doesn't answer it exactly the way you want, don't think, God doesn't care about me. God doesn't care about that person. That is not true. God cares about them and loves them more than we ever can. Uh, there's more to say, but no more time to say it. So, Jesus is the life that brings us to God and brings us to eternity. Jesus is the one who came to accomplish the work of salvation, which is to bring life where there's death. Jesus is the life. He is the one that has come. And the separation we had from God because of our sin that we could not overcome, the way we could not make for ourselves, Jesus came and made that way. In our death, Jesus, in his life, took on death for us so that we can take on life from him. Jesus died the death we deserve so that we can live the life that he should have lived. Jesus is the one who has brought us life, who has brought us to God. And certainly, part of that life is eternal life. We will be with God in eternity. But it's not just that. It's also, God says earlier in John, in John 10, I have come that you would have life abundantly, have it to the full. Now, now fullness of life does not mean easy life necessarily. Fullness of life does not mean a life without pain. Fullness of life does not mean a life where you get everything you want. We still live in a world tainted by sin. We're still sinners ourselves. So sometimes, to be a Christian, fullness of life actually can look more painful than if you weren't a Christian. But with Christ, even in the midst of that pain, there's fullness of life. And there is the hope someday of eternal life, free from sin and pain forever. And one more thing, going back to the wedding imagery, when two people get married, in their vows usually, they say, until death do us part. They say, I want you for the rest of my life. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I want you for all eternity. I want you to be with me where I am. He says, I want you not just for this life, I want you forever. And not forever like people say where it sounds good, but you can't actually accomplish it because you're not going to live forever at least not without dying. 
Jesus says, I want you forever, and I'm able to accomplish that forever. And he says that. He says to each of us, I want you forever. And he says that knowing us. Those of you who are married, you get married and you think you know your spouse, and you do to some degree. And then you get married and you find out you didn't really know them quite as well as you thought you knew them. And you're like, oh, that's a nice, neat surprise that I didn't know about you. And you're also like, oh, that's a less nice, neat surprise that I didn't know about you. That doesn't happen with Jesus. He knows us inside and out. He knows every thought, every action, every motivation. The day will never come where he'll come and say to me, you know, Jesse, I said I wanted you forever, but ooh, that part of you, I wasn't aware of that. Like, I'm sorry, we're done. I'm going to go find someone else, someone better. He'll never say that. Jesus wants you forever. And he's truth. So we know when he says today, I want you forever, that that statement is true forever. In closing, Uh, from verse 1 of this passage. Believe in God, believe also in me. That is the invitation. That is the only application today. To believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus who made a way to the Father where there was none. Who made a way to God that we couldn't make for ourselves. Believe in Jesus who is truth. Believe in Jesus who gives us truth that we can rely on and stand on. Truth that never fails Truth that never fades. Believe in Jesus who is life, who brings us out of death into life. Both in this life gives us abundance and fullness of life, which is not always pleasant, but with him it's abundance and fullness. And also promises us eternal life, eventually. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life that our hearts do not have to be troubled, that you have come, that you have made the way for us that we could not make ourselves, that you give us truth in a world that doesn't even always acknowledge or know whether truth is a thing that exists, and that you've given us life, that in our sin and in our death and in our rebellion against God, you came to us and you gave us life. You brought us to life. You gave us a way. And those things are in yourself, God. I pray for each of us today, whether for the first time or the millionth time that we would believe afresh, Jesus, that you are the way and the truth and the life. And you call to us to enter into your family and to enter into marriage with you. Amen.